Welcome. Ooh, great echo. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to Mystical Musings, March 20th, 2016, here in the Mile High City of Denver in the Walker Fine Art Gallery with Myron McClellan and me, Lawrence Phillips. Now we are together here in our 13th year. We're here near the Civic Center heart of the city in one of the oldest Denver neighborhoods, the Golden Triangle, known for its numerous art galleries, restaurants, and neoclassic architecture. Those of us who identify as spiritual but not religious, who are non-sectarian, non-denominational, non-doctrinaire, are the fastest growing demographic of the sacred communities in America. Thank you for joining us today creating our community of mystics, people finding unity with God, the breath of life, the gentle whisper, the great spirit. As a community of mystics who know beyond the intellect, spiritual apprehension of truths, I am because we are. I am because we're one, celebrating body and spirit. Today's mystic portal is sacred playfulness. This Sunday is Holy Palm Sunday for Christianity, of course, and is sacred as well at the spring equinox for the earth-based religions. We honor these religious celebrations and will create together today our own sacred Sunday mystic event by exploring playfulness as a way of deepening into the mystical. This can sound oxymoronically outrageous, as we so often think of the intense suffering that the mystic has to endure in order to awaken to divine presence. But then we think of the great masters like Nasruddin, a Sufi writer who is a hysterical spiritual teacher. And of course, Hafiz, another early, often very funny Sufi mystic with whom we have laughed many times in our musings together learning that even the deepest teachings can be expressed with humor and delight. This Sunday, we continue our exploration into new spirituality, and we learn the profound value of bringing playfulness to our prayers and meditations and affirmations and of having a playful attitude toward our unfolding days. We want to share with you the joy we have found using this attitude. We've even applied it to tax preparation. <laughs> we are so glad that you've come here today to share some divine play with us while learning what we can do to make life easier and lighter. How do we bring sacred play, mystic play, holy play, to the here and now of this moment. And what is play? Playing is the fundamental, biological, genetically encoded approach to our early childhood learning. Infants play. Children play. Some adults play. They're curious and exploring often entranced in endless repetition, 
wondrous of the present moment in ways that we adults often learn from, awakening in us an inner sense of playing, of being curious, exploring, being non-habitual in our experience of our immediate world, an inner sense that evokes wonder and an inner sense that inspires our innocence. In some ways, still yet present in most of us, despite the incrustations of chronic cerebral culture and adulthood. The incrustations. <laughs> Play is fun. And fun is the Eucharist of the secular side of our living in this society. Fun is the reason why people do things. Whatever it is that they do, find value in and repeat, it's because it's fun. Play originates with the Old English for exercising, brisk moving, and the Middle Dutch for leaping for joy, dancing. When we are playing, we are moving, leaping, and dancing in our hearts. We are having fun. When I was in Princeton, years ago now, I spent a couple years asking absolutely everybody I met everywhere, including waiters in restaurants, why do you do what you do? So you can imagine some people looked at me and went, what? What are you talking about? Why do you do what you do? I was really serious in the question and wanted to have some answers, and overwhelmingly, it was because it was fun. No matter what it was, it was because it was fun. Fun seems to be a prime motivator for most people to do whatever it is that they do for enjoyment. It's fun. The origin of fun comes from the late Middle English for make a fool of, be a fool, be an empty-headed person. <laughs> Sounds somewhat mystical, even Zen to me. Fun and play can derive from a myriad of causes, each of us creating our own unique sense of playfulness. But what, what is sacred play? Well, that is what I experience when Myron plays his mystic piano or when Victoria was playing her beautiful flute this morning. There is a sense in my embodied experience of the moment of now, a wholeness, a holiness, a sense of sacred playing. Art often evokes this experience of the playfulness of the mystic perspective and even the mystic moment as the I-thou-ness of the sacredness of relationship unfolds. Art evokes in me a going beyond borders into deep presence via sacred play. And that's true for the art of music and it's true for the art as you look around this beautiful gallery at some of the amazing art. But what of deep presence from within ourselves, not only in the rapture with the external artist. What of our own mystic playfulness? Our mystic practices provide an endless fount of possibility of play. We sit, we move, we study, we contemplate. All potential sources for sacred play. And we love. Above all else, we love as the sacred practice of the mystic transmission throughout human history, we love. Wasn't this the great avatar Yeshua's great message? Loving our neighbors as we would be loved, loving God with all of our hearts. Approaching the Easter apotheosis, we revel in the fulgent life with which we have been blessed. In reveling, we sacredly play. In loving, we participate in sustaining the species, whatever form of loving we enjoy. We perpetuate the immensely full emptiness, the divine presence, the deeper presence, the constancy of lifelong learning, mystic learning, oneness learning, but especially embodied learning via playfulness. Playfulness wherein we play at being full, being whole, being holy. We suburban and urban mystics of this awesome 21st century after, after Jesus' transformative presence on earth. So, 
let us enter into our temples together, exploring for just a few minutes an embodied sense of now, playing. So if you would, please cross your arms. Yeah, and now uncross, but repeat the pattern of crossing many times. So you're just crossing and uncrossing. And slowly, slowly, it's not a race. (laughs) It's a nice, slow exploration. And you're just noticing, are you isolating the movement just in your shoulders? Can you breathe while you're moving? Can you soften your face while you're moving? Can the jaw... (laughs) Can someone say you said, no, I can't do that. (laughs) Can Can you soften your eyes and let go of your jaw? And breathe more fully and slowly as you allow yourself to cross and uncross. Good. And now, cross your arms in the non-habitual way. Yeah, yeah, how do you figure that one out? You got this, you got whatever you're doing, now do the other one. (laughs) The non-habitual. And so just now repeat that a number of times. The one that's a little strange the one that you're not used to doing, and just letting yourself repeat the pattern of now the non-habitual, something that children and infants do absolutely instinctively. They're not stuck in a rut. And as we have the incrustations, we forget that we do some things the same way. Now, alternate between the two. So go from the one that's so familiar to the other one that is a little different, but maybe becoming a little more familiar. Yeah. So going from one to the other. (laughs) I see the look of perplexity on some of your faces. (laughs) Just notice how you meet the perplexed. Is it with an attitude of, I've got to get this? Or (laughs) Or is it with an attitude of, hmm, huh, look at that. That's different. That's different. And so noticing now, noticing the attitude of play evoked by entering into the temple, our bodies as the temple of the soul, and noticing your playful attitude. Namaste. Today is the first full day of spring. And who doesn't like to go into spring? I mean, that just absolutely makes me smile when I think about spring. And uh, earth religions are celebrating today because it's a holy day, and they're celebrating Great Mother Earth. And so we can feel the energy of that. Um, So it's an energy of newness, right? New plants coming up, new buds on the trees, a kind of inner sense of ah, winter's past. Now we can move into this beautiful season of spring. Today is also Palm Sunday. And so it's the first day of the Holy Week, which is being celebrated all over the Western world. Uh, In Italy, it's really more important than Christmas. They put much more emphasis on Easter than on Christmas. So this begins the Holy Week, Palm Sunday. And this whole week is called the Holy Week. And uh, it's a beautiful time to sit in meditation and prayer. It's a, a great time to celebrate the mystical interpretation of the crucifixion and the resurrection, which is celebrating the ascendancy of heart over the ego. The ego dies on Good Friday and is reborn in spirit and in the heart on Easter. I love my own Holy Week celebration. So on Good Friday, I listened to St. Matthew's Passion all the way through. Monumental work by, by Bach. And so moving. And then on Saturday, 
celebrating the day with a day of prayer and meditation, and then getting up early Sunday to welcome the resurrection and the resurrection that's taking place inside us. It's a very beautiful time of year. So we're so glad you're here to celebrate all that with us. It just means the world to us that you're here. In our new place, right? Very appropriate for spring equinox. So now we can do some playful meditating after we do some music.
Thank you, Myron. You channel this delicious field that we're all creating together into these wonderful sounds that are spontaneous, improvisational, and unique imprint of this moment. Recent musings have included evidence of positive transformation, such as worldwide slow movement. Featured in last month's musings, we've also looked at the rise of the sharing economy, as well as the internet's peer-to-peer -peer revolution, the possibility of nuclear fusion providing safe, limitless, sustainable energy worldwide, and the innovation of mobile money via cell phones, especially in the developing world, all indicators in a time of great darkness of mass positive transformation. From the pessy, from the pessimistic perspective, which I struggle with, we've got threats all over the place. If it isn't the terrorist group ISIS, which, by the way, has destroyed a perfectly respectable Egyptian goddess by the same name, as well as doing in the name of our occult bookstore in Inglewood, <laughs> as well as killing off Lord Grantham's Golden Lab in Downton Abbey. <laughs> if it isn't the metastasizing threat of these terrorist thugs, it is yet another infectious disease, this one known as the Zika virus in South Central America as well as the Caribbean, with an explosion of plastic and rubber solid waste all over the planet and a little bit of rain and you've got a significant disease du jour. And we've certainly got various threats and lots of fear about them. Gun violence, cancer, obesity, the state of our federal politics. But where is a good optimistic to look these days for the rays of light attempting to illum illuminate the positive facets of our increasingly complicated, interdependent, and seemingly endarkened human experience. Since I have a tendency toward both extremes in different circumstances of procrastinating and precrastinating, and yes, precrastinating is a thing, that of starting a task as soon as possible and getting stuff done early, and hence I am an ambicrastinator. <laughs> but for some strange reason, I decided to wait, thereby inhibiting my productivity but enhancing my creativity, or so I was hoping. In my incessant search for evidence in our geopolitically dark times for the positive and for indicators of transformation, I was hoping that procrastinating and letting my mind wander would assist me in being creative and encouraging different ways of thinking about mass positive transformation. I've been wondering whether I could find a psychic placebo that might just psych me into a positive consideration. Given that large pill placebos work better than small ones, which is pretty funny given that they're both inert, <laughs> I imagine I could find some really good Jedi mind trick that might work on me as well as you, especially since there is a niche market online for effective placebos. <laughs> it is of interest to note that mind over matter techniques work because they divert our attention from what is ailing us, very much a matter of where we place our attention. In the spirit of the great Seinfeld TV show about nothing, when you think about it, a very zen approach to humor and art, this month's incipient evidence for mass positive transformation comes from the great quandary of what is the appropriate pronoun for people whose gender, fluid, gender is fluid or unknown? What is the appropriate pronoun for someone whose gender is fluid or unknown? <laughs> I bet you've been thinking about that a great deal. <laughs> this is especially important since Facebook, that arbiter of all things social, has identified almost 60 variations of gender. It used to be simple, or so we imagined, and now we've become ketchup, all over 57 varieties and with no pronoun to distinguish amongst them. What is a good linguistically oriented mystic to do? 
We've been seeing this last year, especially a lot of attention paid to people who identify out of the binary gender approach, the idea that there are just two distinct genders, male and female, and nothing in between. Sexuality is determined by whom you go to bed with. Gender is determined by who you go to bed as. <laughs> he, she, hers, his, male, female are the pronouns again without much in between. Z is the pronoun of choice, that's Z-E, is the pronoun of choice for the student newspaper uh, at Wesleyan. Myron's alma mater, Z. Harvard does it with E. American University has A, E-Y, which I guess is the Canadian influence, eh? For the new pronoun possibility, there is also H-I-R, her, uh, Z, X-E, V, V-E, Ni, N-E, and per, for person, as well as the honorific mix, M-X, pronounced mix, as an alternative to Ms. and Mr., and which was also recently added to the English Oxford Dictionary. We are not quite there yet, but some of you may be getting the idea of where this is going. Among additional words the dictionary was adding were those for, uh, who find intelligence the most sexually attractive feature, sapiosexual. <laughs> Homo sapiens, sapiosexual, of course, it makes sense. I just had never thought of it. Sapiosexual, hmm. And of course, there is cisgender, which references most of us who identify with the sex that we were, as they say, assigned at birth. There is now talk of such vehemence about appropriate gender nomenclature that flyers illustrated with a pair of boxing gloves declare gender pronoun showdown. <laughs> there are daycare centers that proudly tout their gender-neutral pronoun policies, as well as some emotionally vicious YouTube videos showing college professors being skewered for their using the wrong pronoun. So what, you might be asking at this point, is the chosen pronoun? Wait for it. <laughs> the American Dialect Society anointed they, the singular gender-neutral pronoun, and the 2015 Word of the Year. As in, they and I went to the store, where they used for a person who does not identify as male or female, or where the person's gender identity is unknown. Interestingly, they can be found in works of Chaucer and Jane Austen. Word usage will not change overnight. Just look how long it took for the adoption of Ms. But they does have the advantage of already being in the language. They reveals our transforming sense of what it means to be human, moving inexorably toward diversity and tolerance and love. Such linguistic explorations constitute a societal playfulness born of necessity while fostering social change even transformation. Hence, they, as this month's incipient evidence for mass positive transformation. Namaste. <laughs> Shalom. Christ be with you. Assalamu alaikum. Adio. Adios. Aloha. Namaste. We honor the place in you wherein the entire universe dwells. We honor the place in you which is of love, of truth, of light and dark, and of peace. As you are in that place in you and we are in that place in us, we are one together in the sacred play of life. Namaste. I have to tell you a funny story. You've heard us say many times that when we set a topic for the musing, we are immediately tested to see if we're going to walk our talk. <laughs> so, 
So we finished the final editing of the invitation on uh, Saturday. And a few hours later, we were in the emergency room with my looking at Lawrence and saying, how do we make this playful? <laughs> <laughs> but we did. We did. Um, so in taking it playfully, we found that everyone around us took it playfully. The nurses were so sweet, the techs, the lab people, the doctors, Everyone was just so sweet and empathetic and cheerful. And it actually turned out to be a very positive experience. The issue we were in for was one uh, that's common for me is not being able to swallow. And so that got taken care of also. So it was not life or death, but it was getting close. So because I hadn't been able to swallow since three in the morning, and it's now Sunday morning uh, later. But when you can be of good cheer and know that everything is happening because it needs to and wants to and is happening for only the reason, the only reason things happen is to draw us closer to the divine presence. I don't care what it is. It only has one purpose, to draw us closer to ourselves and closer to one another, and closer to the divine presence. And so we came home and just delighted. It was like, wow, beautiful way to start. Now, <laughs> that was his experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's true. And later we had some challenges, really significant challenges to make us be playful. So I want to talk about the spiritual value of playfulness and its uses in our lives. First, I have to tell you a good Nasrudin story, though, to talk about how humor is can teach a very profound lesson. Nasrudin, Lawrence mentioned, is a mythical character. Um, Persia claimed him, uh, Saudi claimed him, Turkey claimed him, and in Turkey, there's a, a, a monument to him. And it's so perfect, it's a door with all these locks but there's no building. <laughs> so there's one great story, I can tell you many, but I'll just stick with one to just show you the value of how this can happen. Nasrudin was, was riding on his donkey madly through the village, up one street and down the other, looking frantically and he would stop and look and then keep going on and looking. And so finally, someone said, what are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my donkey. <laughs> <laughs> so in any case, what we're looking for is also right it inside us and very available to us. What we're really looking for is to be able to contact and bring forward the beautiful, innocent inner child. We don't have to go searching for it because that's who we are. That's the part of us that really knows the divine presence. That's the part that is always in touch with God. And when we uh, take playfulness into our activities, it always includes that innocent child 
who was so happy to play with us. So in meditation, uh, I just sit down and I open myself up to a smiling presence. I just smile when I start to meditate. And that smile, and I keep that going on because I want to be playful with my meditation. Then the child has, magical child has a great role then in, in our lives. And that innocence can, can stay all day long. And if you playfully begin the, your day by saying playfully, I love you, Myron. I love you. I really love you. You are so sweet. You are so loving. I love you. It is an alchemy that happens immediately and it lasts throughout the day. So I do my morning meditation that way and I do my evening meditation and it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. Now playfulness also is extremely helpful when we're having a major ego attack. Right? You know, we don't catch it right away. Right? <laughs> it's like, it goes on for a while and we say, oh, that's my ego. And the ego is almost always serious. <laughs> Dead serious. <laughs> I am better than you. I am worse than you. And if you then play with the ego and say, you know, you're absolutely right. You are absolutely the greatest thing that ever happened. <laughs> I mean, don't even mention sliced bread. <laughs> you are just great. And the ego immediately leaves. <laughs> and the child comes up and says, hey, yeah, all right. And it is also very useful when we are gripped by our victim. And again, we don't catch that right away, and it's more subtle. But any time we are in any way blaming anyone or anything, including God, including ourselves, we enter into victimhood, which takes away our power instantly. So we don't want to stay with that very long, right? Because that's not who we are. So you just go along with the victim and say, oh, gosh, you know, you're really right. She is totally to blame. You had nothing to do with this. <laughs> it was completely her fault. Aren't you pitiful? <laughs> so I really recommend it. I, I do. It's really helpful. It's very, very helpful. We've been talking in our last couple of musings about loving our own heart. And when we love our own heart, such a beautiful feeling, just loving our own heart, then we're loving that child and the magical child comes forward and we're sitting there in our innocence. And as we're sitting loving our heart and our innocence, we are changing the world. It is not just me that I change when I change this, because we're all one, right? So we're changing the world. When we are sweet to ourselves, we're being sweet to everyone else. And it is such a beautiful way to go to the divine presence through loving your heart, embracing your innocence, bringing that forward in your life. Beautiful, beautiful practice. Now sometimes playfulness can be a lifesaver. So 
Some of you have heard this story. I don't tell it often because it's a little horrifying. But in Brazil, on my second trip to see John of God, my first trip was all light. My second trip was all darkness. Then the third trip was both of them, wholeness. But in that dark trip, I got very ill one night. It was the worst pain I've ever been in. I had an upset stomach. I had friends gathering around me and someone going to the pharmacist to get medicine for me. And then as the night went on, I, I was sinking deeper and deeper into unbelievable spiritual, emotional, mental, and physical pain. And I couldn't get out of it, and I wasn't trying to. I knew enough to let myself be there with it and to stay there with it, because if I resisted, it was going to get worse. And if it got any worse, I was going to die. So during this time, I also heard voices saying, you're, you're finished here. Why don't you just die? It's a good time for you to die. And I would say, well, I, I'm not ready to leave Lawrence. I'm not ready to leave my godchildren. I'm not ready to leave my friends. Oh, that's all ego, this voice would say. And the pain became almost unbearable, absolutely unbearable. Had no idea how I was going to be able to come out of this. And then as morning came, as I was in the ninth rung of hell, I thought of a funny story, and I started laughing. <laughs> and I couldn't stop laughing <laughs> for at least half an hour. I was hysterical. I was rolling, holding my sides, and everything was over. Physical pain gone, mental, emotional, spiritual pain gone, just by thinking of something funny. And then, of course, I was back in my innocent child again and ready to play, ready to play. You know, we have grown up in this country with a very intense work ethic, which has certainly bled into our spirituality. So we've thought that everything takes tremendous effort. We have to do stuff. We can't just play. But when we play, we're allowing things to happen. And when we have a playful attitude about everything, it makes a big difference, I promise you. It makes a really big difference. So if something annoying happens, you know, like losing a hearing aid, <laughs> I playfully say, Lawrence can find it. <laughs> to worry. <laughs> it's okay. Another place that I notice I am bringing playfulness to is when I eat. Because often when I eat, I go unconscious. Or I read or something. I don't pay any attention to read. So after in the being in the emergency room, <laughs> I thought, I've got to change my approach here. <laughs> and so Lawrence and I figured out a way to handle that. And it really was bringing back the playfulness and the joy of eating. I had been working at it really hard all my life, saying, OK, no carbs, no fat. Certainly no sugar. Life without sugar is not playful. <laughs> and to certain other activities, too, bringing a playful consciousness. So I've been applying it to even 
little daily things, like playfully putting on my clothes. Putting on my clothes like a child would. And it puts me in the greatest mood. <laughs> you know, it's just like, okay, right, you look good. Okay. <laughs> So wherever I can bring that to bear, I do. One place also where it is extremely powerful is in making intentions. You know, because we tend to get really serious when there's something we want and we're intending. And first of all, that puts us right in our head right next door to the ego, right, when we're, try when we're intending things. But you remember Diane Collins and uh, Do You Quantum Think, that book we talked about for quite a while? And she talks about intentions as visualizing what you want, going to a place of joy and peace and love and playfulness and then inviting in to yourself what it is you're intending. So, it, you know, if, if, if it's heavy, it makes it a lot harder. If I wanted to pull Rudite up here, right, that would be kind of hard for me to do with my mind. However, if there was a marble there, I might be able to bring it forward for me. So when we're serious in doing intentions, we put them in concrete and it's hard for them to get to us. So when we have the playfulness about our intentions, intentions, it really lightens everything up and it's much more powerful intending, much more powerful. So there are places and times in everyday life when it's not appropriate to be playful. Like when you have a good friend who is suffering, or when you have a family member that has just died. Playfulness is not useful there. However, Loving your grief and bringing it to you is very useful. And when we bring our grief, our anger, and our fear and embrace them in love, not wishing they weren't there, embracing them in love, no, long, no matter how long it takes, keep up the fear, anger, grief, we're bringing forward the wounded child. The wounded child is the one who has been abandoned. And when we refuse to feel our feelings, refuse to love them and welcome them, then that wounded child is abandoned once again. So, we want to bring everything lovingly in our life, no matter what it is. And if it can be playfully brought into our lives, we embrace that and feel the joy of it. And if it's painfully brought into our lives, we love that also, knowing that this is another step in healing the wounded child. So this is spring, and this is time for us to play. This is time to go for hikes, go out and garden. It's a time to play. And so it is a great way to begin our spring and our Holy Week by being as playful as we can in as many areas of life as we can. I promise you it works, <laughs> but you have to try it. <laughs> Namaste.
let's just anchor that sense of playfulness. So you crossed your arms before. Cross your legs. Yeah. And now cross in the less habitual way. And just notice how different that is. Yeah. And so now go from one to the other. And just play with making it be a little more familiar as you do it. And let's try it a little differently. Interlace your fingers. Notice which thumb is on top. Now interlace your fingers in the non-habitual way. And notice how you feel about that. <laughs> and now alternate. And the alternation, lightly and easily done, helps to create a sense of being ambi, ambi-fingered. <laughs> so as we conclude with what our segment is called embodied prayer, I would invite you to sit taller, limbs uncrossed in open position, opening up the breathing, opening up the chest, opening up the abdominal, just noticing how it's a little easier to breathe a little more fully. Softening the eyes, letting go of the jaw. Except you become as little children. How do we bring a playfulness to our suffering? And the attributions of this part are written behind me on the table over here if you want to know who said some of these gems. How do we bring a sense of playfulness to our suffering? An answer to this is epitomized by a wonderful sharing from the great late Thich Nhat Hanh, Vietnamese Buddhist Zen monk. He says, with mindful breathing, you can recognize the presence of a painful feeling, just like an older sibling greets a younger sibling, and you can say, hello, my suffering, this might be very familiar with some of you of either an older or a younger sibling. <laughs> Hello, my suffering. <laughs> I know you're there. <laughs> In this way, the energy of mindfulness keeps us from being overwhelmed by painful feelings. We can even smile to our suffering and say as we might to a sibling, good morning, good morning, my pain, my sorrow, my fear, I see you are here, I am here, don't worry. Great-grandfather Gandhi was a very playful politician, unmercifully teasing the occupation forces as would a child tease, living a childlike simplicity, daring any scenario, free to dream any dream except you become as little children. Not to worry. As long as words and ideas exist, there will be a few misfits who will cavort with them in the spirit of approfondiment, if I may borrow that marvelous French word that translates as playing easily in the deep. Approfondiment. <laughs> Yum. <laughs> and in so doing, they will occasionally bring to realization play as an axe for the frozen seas around us. We are cultivating lightheartedness, curiosity, and ease, the ease of little children, opening to our innocence, our inner sense. Except you become as little children. After an impressively long career of studying Chinese characters, a great Japanese linguistic scholar famously declared his most beloved character of all was that for playing. Loving the freedom inherent in playing since in ancient times, the idea of freedom 
was thought to be how the gods played and lived in perfect freedom as an end unto itself. Playfulness is fostered by allowing a free flow of energy through the temples of our embodied selves, sitting taller, deeper breathing, softening chronic holding, evoking deeper presence, our embodied selves as a fount of playfulness. From great-grandfather Rumi, disputational knowing wants customers. It has no soul. The only real customer is God. Chew quietly your sugarcane God love and stay playfully childish. As mystics, we are learning to enjoy life and having fun doing what we love. Life is too important to be taken seriously. <laughs> to me, there is nothing more sacred than love and laughter, and there is nothing more prayerful than playfulness. They say, is there play after 80? I say... Is there play before 80? <laughs> God, by his grace, bestows on the aged a youthful passion the young cannot know. Such youthfulness refreshes, causing one to leap and laugh and give one a desire to play. Because the true elder sees the world as new and is not weary of it, he or she desires to play. They leap and bound and grow robust. Great is the glory of old age if when the gray hairs appear, one's steed of playfulness leaps wildly. Religion lacking in play is suicidal. To keep religion on the side of humanity instead of against it, we need continuously to refresh its playfulness. Sacred play promotes the best of our human nature, improves our well-being, and is fun. Becoming as little children. Namaste. Namaste.